In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Father, I thank you for bringing us together this evening. I thank you for this talk that I pray is your words and not mine. Please send your Holy Spirit upon us this evening to inspire us, to invigorate us, to really desire the full, fruitful life in the Spirit that you have called us to. I ask this all through the intercession of your most blessed mother. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay. So let's continue on that theme. Anybody here ever heard there's this there's this old book, probably not a lot of people have heard of it. It's called the Baltimore Catechism. Anybody heard of that? Awesome, awesome. So you guys are gonna know all the answers tonight. So tell me, who made you? Awesome. I love it. Getting the whole sentence out there, not just God, but giving me the whole thing. I don't actually care. Why did God make you? Exactly. To know him, love him, serve him, so that we can be with him forever. Okay? How do we do that? I thought you guys knew your Baltimore Catechism. Oh, you know what? That's right. That's not a Baltimore Catechism question. That's what we're here to address tonight. How do we do that? This is where the rubber meets the road. There's a lot of talk. There's a lot of content to this. Um, I was telling Jenny earlier, I had probably like three hours of content that I had to trim down for this. So this is going to be a freight train cutting through really fast. And that's another good reason for saving all the questions for the end, because you might actually have a couple. All right. So what this talk isn't about, this is not about the sacraments. This is not about mass. This is not about the communal life. This is about what makes your relationship with Jesus yours. This is about the unique elements of your relationship with Christ. So this is about your personal spirituality. And we're going to talk about what that means. Okay? The church tells us in the catechism, and for those who want it, it's paragraph 2684, these spiritualities, the church tells us, come in varied forms, many of them. And it says, in their rich diversity, these spiritualities are refractions of the one pure light of the Holy Spirit. So the spirituality, the way we live out our faith, the way you live out your relationship with Christ, and I live out mine, is about the light of the Holy Spirit in this world. Okay? Now, um, and we're going to need the Holy Spirit for this. It's his light. We're going to need the Holy Spirit because what we're going on is a journey. We're going to go on an adventure that Jesus is going to lead us on. And I don't use that word lightly. Uh, and I'd like to give you an example of that. Uh, I didn't know what I was in for a while back when I was texting a friend. And I said to him, you know, the last few months have been crazy. Actually, I said, I hope God keeps the change coming because the last few months, it's been an incredible, wild, and painful ride, but it would be hard for me to trade a moment of it. It was less than a week later that we discovered my wife was diagnosed with a serious uh, health issue. She had a volleyball-sized cyst on her liver that was going to require major surgery. It was about two weeks later that I lost my job. Uh, it was going to be a really exciting answer to that prayer. And I will say that while I was terrified on both those days, my wife and I, rather begrudgingly, put those situations in the hand of the Lord those days. Um, to be honest, we weren't familiar enough with him to fully trust his plans for us yet. We did place it in his hands, but we just didn't have that experience with him. But he did answer my prayer. It was the beginning of a recurring theme in my life. God, you've got momentum with me. Don't stop now. Keep going. And every few months, every few months, he gives me that prayer. It comes to my mind again. And I pray it, and he answers it. And life is not boring. Okay? The, the, I, I do not live a full spiritual life, but I am in journey. I am on my way, uh, I like to think. And God does not give me a dull moment. So, the spiritual life principle, the spiritual life is a journey of discovery. We're going to have lots of these principles. So, we're going to discover God on this journey. We're going to discover ourselves on this journey. Well, how is that going to happen? This is going to happen because the Holy Spirit, as Scripture says, is going to convict us of sin. 
Isn't that exciting? No? No? Not too much? Okay. But really, that's how it's going to happen. The Holy Spirit's going to convict us. How does that work? Well, if you've ever heard the saints talk about how insignificant or, or worthless they are, or what great sinners they are, it sounds like kind of a downer. Um, the reality is, it's not that at all. Because the way that the Holy Spirit convicts us is not that he comes to remind us of our sins and all the bad things that we've done. No, that's what the devil does. So when you feel yourself reminded of your sins, tell him where to go. When you're not being reminded of your sins, the way the Holy Spirit works is he comes and he brings the love of God into our life and into our sins. He illuminates those darknesses and imperfections in our lives, and he separates them from us. Once it's been illuminated and we see the ugliness, we are amazed at the love of God. We are amazed at his passion for us, his humility, his care, his concern for his people. And then, as painful as it can be to separate from those things, we look on our sins and we see them as they are. We see their ugliness. He makes it possible for us to no longer want them in our lives in new ways, in ways that refresh us. So, new, new principle. The Holy Spirit is our guide on this journey. Thank God, because it is a confusing journey. One of my favorite writers in the spiritual life is Father Jacques Philippe. Anybody know Jacques Philippe? We got a couple hands here. All right. So in his book, The School of the Holy Spirit, anybody read that? Oh, man, I love that. I love that. You know, he just opens it up. If you, you know, I don't know if you're a forward-reading person that you go and read the foreword to a book, but in his foreword, he's got this quote from St. Therese. And she starts out saying, how easy the spiritual life is. And I'm like, baloney. How easy the spiritual life is. And I read the book, and I finish it, and I'm like, I haven't experienced it, but I believe it. I believe it. It's coming. It's amazing. So in his book, In the School of the Holy Spirit, he tells us the Spirit guides us by inspirations or movements of the heart. And if we wish to receive these inspirations, which we are receiving constantly, constantly, we're just not aware of them. So if we wish to receive more of these inspirations, especially ones that we can hear, he tells us that the first thing that we have to do is, if we receive one, obey it. Obedience will be that first step. So keep that in mind. We have to have the humility to be obedient. So when we finally recognize one, when we finally recognize one of those movements of the heart, one of those inspirations from the Holy Spirit, and we obey it, great fruit will be born in our lives because it's through experience that God is going to teach us. Now, these inspirations that illuminate our life are part of interior conversion or repentance in the Christian life. This interior conversion is going to be a code word for the spiritual life. That's what the spiritual life is. It's how you and I are converted, as Scripture says, from glory to glory. It is how we are converted from bad to not so bad, from not so bad to better, from better to great, to holiness, to heroic love. You're probably going to wonder before the end of the talk how we're going to recognize these, these movements of the heart that are from the Holy Spirit, how we're going to know it's him. Um, that's an important topic, and unfortunately one that I don't have time to fit into this talk. All right? So these inspirations, they're part of our interior conversion. Life, our spiritual life is going to be continuous conversion. And the Catechism tells us that this conversion is accomplished in daily life by gestures of reconciliation, and that it can be expressed in many and various ways. But Scripture and the Fathers of the Church insist on three in particular, fasting, prayer, and almsgiving, which express conversion in relation to myself, to God, and to the world. Okay, so fasting, prayer, and almsgiving. Those are going to be the same. These are what I'm going to call the three pillars of your spiritual life. These are going to be a spiral staircase by which we are going to ascend nearer and nearer to God. They are going to be both 
the foundation of our spiritual life and the fruits of our spiritual life as it bears fruit. So it says prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. I'm going to say mercy. Almsgiving is a special kind of mercy um, that I'm going to address in a minute. But I'm going to call this the three-legged stool of the spiritual life. It's the one that we sit on that props us up. And our personal spirituality inwardly is going to be this practice of ongoing conversion day to day. And outwardly, it is going to be the form by which we bring his love into the world. So that's what I mean by it is both the foundation, so it has to do with our inward spiritual life as we continue to be converted, and it's also the fruit by these are the means by which we bring the love of God into the world. Okay, so principle. The three-legged stool is the foundation and the fruit of our ongoing conversion. The three-legged stool was addressed particularly in a, in a beautiful sermon by St. Peter, not the apostle. St. Peter, who was a church father in the early 400s, he was known for his powerful but concise sermons, beautifully short, I mean, excellent. If you ever get the chance to go read them, go read them. And because of this, he was given the name Chrysologus. So Peter Chrysologus, golden-worded. So he spoke of these in a particular sermon, which we're going to cite here. And his sermon examines each pillar of the spiritual life individually. He says, there are three things, my brothers, by which faith stands firm. Devotion remains constant, and virtue endures. They are prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. Prayer knocks at the door. Fasting obtains. Mercy receives. Prayer, mercy, and fasting, these three are one, and they give life to each other. Fasting is the soul of prayer. Almsgiving is the lifeblood of fasting. So mercy and almsgiving are going to give life to our fasting. I don't know how many people really practice fasting. I'm going to go and say three weeks ago outside of Lent, I didn't really do that. But it's kind of exciting, actually. <laughs> so he goes on and he says, let no one try to separate them. They can't be. If you have only one of them, or two of them, not all three together, you have nothing. His words, not mine. So, if you came to me and you said, I'm really struggling in my prayer life, I would say to you, so how's your fasting? And if you said, well, fasting really drags me down. I'd say, so what are you doing for mercy? And if you say, well, you know, I see people on the street and I just... I don't know what to say to him. If you don't know what to say to Jesus on the street, spend some time talking to him in prayer. You'll find words. These three are going to support each other. So how do you break into that loop? How do you get started? Because they all kind of support each other in this in this circle. We're going to get to that. So in prayer, we're going to draw near to the Lord. In fasting, we're going to empty ourselves to be filled by him. And in almsgiving, we are going to both be Christ to the world and encounter him face to face. So let's start with prayer. A principle. Prayer is about relationship. And a fundamental aspect of this relationship is consistency. We're going to see this again and again. You know, hey, I prayed, nothing happened. Not nothing happened. You started. It's going to require consistency. Okay? Remember, it's a relationship. The Catechism tells us, in the New Covenant, prayer is the living relationship of the children of God with their Father, who is good beyond all measure. It qualifies that. It stops that. It interrupts this declaration of the Trinity, because it's going to say also with Jesus and also with the Holy Spirit. But it stops right there and it says, it is the relationship with, of the children of God with their Father, who is good beyond all measure. Hang on to that. He is good beyond all measure. When you go to pray, you are meeting someone who is good beyond all measure for you. For you. Not just good in himself, but this is a loving relationship. He wants the best for you, and he's actually able to bring that about. Which is more than I can say for all of my time with my kids. I always want, I, I always 
think I want good for my kids. Sometimes they, sometimes I'm not so happy with my kids. You know, if I'm, if I'm really honest. Um, but most of the time, I like to think that I really love my kids and I really want the best for them. But the fact is, I can't always, I can't always do what's best for them. I'm not actually capable of doing everything that's best for them because I don't know it. Honestly, I don't always know it. God does know, and he has the power to bring it about. He knows better than you and I know what's best for us. So, what do we take away from that piece from the church? Prayer is a living relationship. It's living. It's ongoing. We don't just know someone that we run into occasionally. Okay? There's a guy that comes and takes out the trash at my work. And I see him, you know, when I was in another room, I saw him every day. Okay? I didn't have a relationship with that guy. Okay? It's not coincidental. You don't just incidentally run into God and say, oh, hey, great to see you again, and end up having a relationship with him. That's not how it works. It's got to be intentional. It's got to be consistent. It's got to be continuous. We get to know people through intentional, frequent encounters. But let's go back to Christologus for a minute, who tells us why mercy and fasting are necessary, but he didn't tell us why prayer is necessary. He told us that mercy gave life. He gave. He told us that fasting gave life to prayer. Mercy gave life to fasting. He didn't tell us what prayer does. So he doesn't say it explicitly, but I believe it's the fact that prayer inspires mercy, because when you have talked with God, you won't be able to keep it to yourself. You will feel compelled to bring it to others. It's going to propel you out of yourself to bring God to others. And that is how I think that prayer inspires mercy. So how do we do prayer? Let's take that piece. Where is God? When can we talk to him? Let's do it. Okay? I want everybody to take a second here. I just want you to think of something from your day today that you want to thank Jesus for. Just one little thing, you know, it could be, I had a great day at work, thanks Jesus. It could be, um, you know, the sky was beautiful, and it was. If you were on the way down here, about 6.45, 7-ish, the sky was beautiful. You know, maybe you want to thank him for that. Um, maybe you just want to thank him for breathing. Let's take a second. I'm going to need a volunteer here. I'll share. So the, the first thing was that I thank God for my coworker. <laughs> I knew this was a mistake. Okay, let's stop there. Would you mind saying that prayer to Jesus for us? Yeah. Father, thank you so much for, for your presence. Thank you for your presence in my life earlier today and all the different forms that that took. Uh, but thank you particularly for the conversations. Uh, that you've given to me with my coworkers, and thank you for your forgiveness for me um, and my failures there. Thank you for your love for me beyond all of that, and that your grace and that your mercy shines through in that. In Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thanks. Give a hand for Nick. So Nick works with me. My prayer wasn't anywhere near that exciting, and I'd be willing to bet that there were a lot of people in this room that it wasn't either. Sometimes prayer is just, as I said, thank you for the beautiful weather this day. God, you're amazing. Sometimes it's just silence. Okay? And these prayers aren't exactly, you know, John of the Cross's transforming union that we're talking about here. But that's okay. These prayers are perfect by themselves. Not that they have perfected us in that prayer, but you guys have said a prayer. It's a prayer. That's important. Okay? Say another one, and another one, and another one. Okay? These are the beginning. I put off doing prayer for so long because I wanted to do it right. That was the worst mistake ever. It is. Do not delay. Okay? Go home and pray, even if it's just... That was an awful talk, but thanks for letting me get out and have some beer. Okay? Hey. It, it does not have to be complicated. So, principle here. The spiritual life is a journey. We already know that. The spiritual life is a journey that is going to progress 
not through just knowledge of the perfect way to do things. It's going to progress through practice and experience. Okay? It is not like other fields where you can get to the top of your class. You don't. You don't get to the top. Okay? And this is true of the spiritual life, the spiritual gifts, God's life in us. There is not a ceiling. You're not going to get there. Okay? So stop thinking that I'm going to skip ahead to the end if I just do it right. You're not. I know somebody that told me once, I had an opportunity to evangelize. And I just, I didn't have the right words, so I didn't, I didn't want to do it. Okay? You know, they said, I knew something, but I didn't want to, like, scare them away. I didn't want to do it wrong. Do it wrong. Okay? The fact that you were afraid of doing it wrong is a good sign. Okay? But do it. Because it's only through practice and experience that we're going to grow. God's going to ask us to do some things that, you know, what you or I might call silly, okay? Uh, uh, Mother Angelica used to say, we have to be willing to do the ridiculous so that God can do the impossible, okay? We're going to do some things, and we're going to do it wrong. But you know what? God is going to use, first of all, us trying to help us grow. And second of all, he's going to use it in ways that we thought, well, that was useless because it just really didn't turn out well. And it may have been exactly what God wanted in that situation for you and the other person. So don't be afraid of not doing it perfectly. So we're okay with not doing a perfect prayer. Now, well, let's let's walk through five steps that you can use in your daily personal prayer. Okay? I'm just going to give you five steps. You know, these are going to be kind of generic, and I'm going to give you some specifics that you can use along the way. But five steps for starting out praying, okay? Get comfortable. Just find a spot and get comfortable, okay? And the first question that a lot of people have is, okay, um, if I do this early in the morning, which is the only time that I have to pray, which is when I pray, I'm probably going to fall asleep when I get comfortable. And this is true. First-hand knowledge, I fall asleep in prayer. It happens. Sometimes I fall asleep before I start praying. Depends on how lucky I am. Okay, I, I want to lay that out there because I want to say, first of all, over the ages, I think that our Heavenly Father has had a lot of his children fall asleep, leaning on his breast, and mumbling or crying or yelling or even smiling and just falling asleep in his arms, in his embrace. I don't think that he's going to be offended by one more. And if you've ever had a child do that to you, I think you'll understand that nothing could be further from the truth than that he would not be happy to have you there. So I'm not going to encourage you to fall asleep. But be at peace about that. Not so much at peace that you fall asleep, but don't worry about falling asleep. That's not the big concern. Okay? So, um, so people say, I don't want to get too comfortable. You know, they might do something that might be uncomfortable, like let me find a hard spot to kneel on or something. And I would say, please, don't do something that's going to cause you discomfort. Because especially if you're starting out, maybe you're not starting out. I'm not trying to put you in a specific place. But whether you're starting out or not, um, discomfort might just be a distraction. I know it is for me. I know when I started out, it was many, many months before I really felt like I was coming to prayer and happy to be there. Even when I saw fruits, I wasn't always happy to be there. It took many months to get to that point. Many months of consistency and inconsistency because I'm, I'm just not perfect like that. But the discomfort is not going to come from how you position yourself. The discomfort is going to come in the prayer. If you're doing it right, God's going to make you uncomfortable. And this leads into my next point. I have a really good friend, and he says, if you're doing it right, every time you read Scripture, and that's going to be my next point, every time you read Scripture, it should make you uncomfortable. It should make you uncomfortable. And we're pretty good friends, so I said, you know, does it 
doesn't ever get to a point where you're like, okay, we're kind of like friends now, and you know, I, I really do know and love the Lord, and you know, it's not perfect, but hey, I know him and I love him, and we kind of got this friendship and an understanding going on. Is it always uncomfortable? And he says to me, when you get closer to the Lord, you realize what a lousy friend you are. You realize what a lousy friend you are. Praying with scripture should always make you uncomfortable. Now, this could make sense because we've already said that the, that the spiritual life is one of continuous conversion. That means it's always going to call us out of ourselves. But if that sounded like a downer to you, I refer to my earlier comments about the saints, who would always say how worthless and insignificant and what great sinners they were. But it wasn't about their sin. It was about being blown away by the love of God that had been revealed to them. Okay? So make yourself comfortable. Read Scripture. Before you talk to God, let Him speak to you. I got a lot to say this morning. Before I get it all out, let him speak to me, okay? Give him the opportunity. Give him the first word. Read scripture. I especially recommend the Psalms because the Psalms teach us how to pray. The Psalms are mentioned like one time in the catechism, and it, what it says is they teach us how to pray. I, I actually don't know the paragraph off the top of my head, so it's not going to be in the citations, but it it's in there. Go look it up. It's pretty amazing. But the Psalms, the Gospels, and the daily readings of the church. So you're going to get the Psalms and the Gospels in there. So kind of cool. But I would say read the Scriptures. So be comfortable. Read the Scriptures. Third step, have a guided meditation. Okay? When you're starting out, this is very practical. When you're further along, this is very, very fruitful because it demands humility of us that we're continuing to admit that I don't have it all together. I don't have all the answers. And I'm going to let myself be guided in the spiritual life. Because the minute I think I'm in control, God's going to let me be. It's not going to end well. Okay? So have a guided meditation. There are plenty of them out there, um, especially for the daily readings. You can get the Magnificat. You could get One Bread, One Body. You can get Bishop Barron does a meditation every day. Um, you could just get a scripture commentary and work your way through one of the Gospels. There are plenty of sources out there, including free ones. After you've had your scripture and your meditation, have some silence, okay? Give God that opportunity to speak to you in the silence. Okay, give him the opportunity to expand on what he's spoken to you in his word. And then we get to talk. So give him a few minutes of silence, and once you've had that silence, then we get to talk, and we get to tell him. Because at that point, We've actually got something from him to talk about and not just something from me. You know, this is your opportunity to ask questions of him about the gospel. Is that, is that for me? I mean, am I being a blind guide? Am I being a hypocrite? Um, you know, or maybe am I really being a good servant? Am I making something of my talents? Are you trying to tell me that I have? that I am doing that right now? Because God's going to speak to us in a lot of different ways in his scripture. And then this is not one of the steps, but I would really recommend that you take notes. Okay? So when you're taking notes, um, you give yourself the opportunity to reflect on what has happened to you in the past. It will help you remember things. It will help remind you of God's fidelity, of God's love. It will help you remind of moments of great consolation and nearness to him. So I would encourage you to journal along the way. And kind of a, a secret that really, really helped me starting out was um, I kind of broke these five steps. And before, when I sat down to get myself comfortable, you know, I was having that trouble falling asleep. And actually more so falling asleep was distractions. I would sit down and I would just think of anything but, but God and the Bible and what I was reading. I would Everything else would be on my mind. And then somebody said to me, well, what I do every day is I sit down, and while I'm getting myself comfortable, I write down all the things from the previous day that were of significance, that were of note. Okay, I started doing that. I got all my distractions out of the way. I got them out of the way. And I actually 
couple that with an examination of conscience or an examine in the evening. So then I was starting to note the same things in the evening as I was in the morning. It was reinforcing it, and those things had no longer any hold on me. They were there if I wanted them so that I could see the patterns of God's love in my life, but they no longer had a hold on me, and I was able to open myself up to what God had to say to me in the Scripture. And I also fell asleep less when I was getting comfortable. Okay, so we're going to jump ahead to fasting. Uh, fasting. St. Peter Chrysologus said, this gives life to our prayer. And you might say, well, my prayer feels alive. I, I pray now, and I feel like it's fruitful. And that can definitely be the case. But you don't know how fruitful your prayer can be until you've fasted with it. When you fast with your prayer, it can be really powerful. It'll give you life you didn't know it had. So he says, fasting will give life to our prayer. The Catechism tells us that interior conversion, remember, that's our code word for the spiritual life, urges expression in visible signs, gestures, and works of penance, like fasting. And the prior principles still apply. It'll be good if we have some, some consistency to our fasting. So I would urge you to fast with the church on Fridays when we remember Christ's crucifixion in preparation to remember his resurrection on Sunday. That's what the church does every weekend. Every Friday we remember his death. Every Sunday we remember his resurrection. So Friday is the day of penance in the church, and I would encourage you to participate in that. Now, fasting does something that prayer doesn't do. Prayer fills us. Fasting creates a hold. Fasting creates a hold. Because when we fast, we let go of something of ourselves. We open ourselves up. We let go of something that's ours. I decide I'm not going to have this today or for five minutes or whatever it is, whatever the period is. I'm letting go of something of myself. And that gap needs to be filled. Because if you, if you think you're not filling it, it's getting filled by something you don't want in there. Because let me think about, you know, normal bad things that happen to me. Because fasting is, it's suffering. It's, you know, generally falls in the category of something you might consider like a bad thing. Let me think of another kind of suffering. You know, if my tire blows out on my way to work, um, I'm not usually real happy about that. Okay? I have some kind of suffering in my life. There's a hole because some things are not going the way I, I planned them to. What's it getting filled with? It gets filled with irritation, anger, frustration, regret, bitterness, things that I don't need any more of in my life. So when you fast, make sure you're filling the hole that fasting gives you. So I would say fill it with prayer. Um, the church specifically says that one of the best ways that we can fill this is that daily conversion and penance find their source and nourishment. They are filled in the Eucharist. In the Eucharist. So if you're not going to daily Mass, when you fast, go to daily Mass. If you are going to daily Mass, great. Let's move on to the next step. What I do when I'm fasting, what I found to be really fruitful is, so let me preface this a little bit. I like to bake, and uh, people that know me know that I really, really like food. I like to make food. I like to eat food. I'm, it's like uh, another love. Okay? I love food. So when I've, when I've fasted, I've fasted from food. And because I am so in love with food, I am excruciatingly aware that I'm on a fast when I'm on a fast. I mean, it is constantly present to me. Okay, I, I, I did uh, not a really long fast, but I did a fast that was just bread, bread and water. And that was miserable. Not because I was hungry. I mean, I could stuff my face with bread, but give me some fruit, give me some flavor. I was just dying by the end. I said to my wife, what if I make some homemade bread and I put like some spices and some herbs and some cheese and some fruit in it? Could I do that? Would I still be fasting? And she's like, I think you can do whatever you're willing to do. <sighs> I didn't make bread. Okay. So, but that was, that fasting was a constant reminder to me. If you're not aware of your fast, you, you might not be doing much of a fast. If you're aware of your fast, 
use that awareness. So what I would do is I was fasting for a particular thing. Every time I was reminded of my fast, which was the logs, I would pray. I would pray for the intention I was fasting for, the person I was fasting for. It was constantly coming back to my mind. And while it took me half my fast to figure that out, that I could feel it that way, because the first half I was just kind of being like, this sucks. Um, later, I found that was incredibly fruitful. I became joyful in my fasting, even though it got harder as it went on longer. So fill your fasting with prayer. Now, we mentioned fasting is a kind of suffering. We want to remember what we're trying to do here. We are trying to follow the perfect model of redemptive suffering. This is not wasted suffering. This is efficacious. This is redemptive. We are trying to participate in Christ's redemptive suffering on the cross for his people. As Since we are now part of his body, he has redeemed human suffering, and we can participate in his suffering. John Paul II wrote this fantastic apostolic letter on the Christian meaning of human suffering. That's what it's called. And uh, so he points out Christ as the model of redemptive suffering on the cross. He says there are three characteristics that Christ had when he was suffering on the cross, particularly the fact that, first of all, he suffered voluntarily. He chose it of his own free will. We can do that. We can do that in fasting. He suffered uh, innocently. He didn't suffer for his own sin. Now, this is extremely obvious when we're suffering for someone else, when we're suffering intercessively for someone else, that I'm not suffering for myself. I'm suffering for somebody else. I'm doing it innocently. And then the last part of it is he suffered out of unconditional love for us. I might struggle with that one a bit. It's a joke. Definitely suffer with that, struggle with that one. Okay, so he goes on from this to talk about the power that redemptive suffering has. He says, it is suffering more than anything else which clears the way for the grace which transforms human souls. Suffering more than anything else, more than anything else transforms human souls. You want to transform your soul? Some kind of penance or mortification might be in your future. It might be. It might be a good step forward for you. Okay? It says, suffering more than anything else makes present in the history of humanity the powers of redemption. Our suffering, because Christ has redeemed suffering, and we can suffer redemptively, our sufferings can be efficacious as well in him. Our suffering makes present in this moment in history the powers of redemption. That's pretty big. That's pretty powerful. That's pretty cool. I, I, I'm kind of excited at being able to participate in that. So th there's this cool thing that John Paul wrote. If you want to know what some of the fruits are of suffering, then I would point you to Isaiah chapter 58. He's specifically talking about fasting. And he says that the fruits include things like guidance from God. You want to know where to go with your life? Fasting. The fruit of fasting is guidance from God. Another fruit of it is renewal, healing, freedom, justice. There's like 50 things listed in there. I'm not going to read them, but I would recommend you go check out Isaiah 58. It's a treasure trove. Okay? Why does fasting do this? Well, we already talked about being united with Christ's sufferings and how cool that is. But remember that hole that fasting leaves in us. That's us being emptied of ourselves. God is able to enter into that hole and work in us. Okay, that's why this is so efficacious. Because he can do things in us that we can't do through our own power when he comes in and fills that hole. When we empty something of ourselves to let him in. Okay, so when Jesus fasted for 40 days in Luke, he was probably pretty weak. He was probably pretty weak after 40 days of fasting. But he was actually strong. He was very strong. He was strengthened by the Spirit to face temptations. Anybody got temptations in their life? Anybody got sins they struggled with? Me, for sure. He was strengthened to face the temptation of the devil. Not only that, but what happens immediately after that in Luke? 
he gets out of the desert and he goes straight into the city and begins his ministry. And it says, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Fasting gets us the Holy Spirit. When we, I mean, Jesus physically has got to be white. I'm thinking when I'm done with fasting, I want a big meal and a nap. And he goes into the city and starts working in the power of the Holy Spirit. Fasting is powerful. In Acts, it's while the church at Antioch is fasting that Paul and Barnabas are called and sent on their mission. The Holy Spirit came in through their fasting and prayer and moved them to begin their mission. So it, it starts things. It starts things. It renews things. St. Athanasius wrote a life of St. Anthony in the desert because apparently like, he knew St. Anthony who lived in the desert. And he says that Anthony much preferred asceticism, mortification, fasting, exercise, to any softness in his life because, as he said, when the enjoyments of the body are weak, then is the power of the soul strong. Okay? This is a guy who lived many days travel into the desert by himself. He's not getting daily sacraments. He's not getting weekly sacraments. He's probably not getting monthly sacraments. There weren't as many priests then as there are today per capita. He's not, he's not getting the life of the church the way you and I have the opportunity to here in America. And yet, he lived one of the most beautiful, spirit-filled, power-filled lives. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Really short book. Totally, totally recommend it. Life of St. Anthony of the Desert. Principle. When I am weak, I am strong in the spirit. Strong to resist temptation, strong to know and carry out God's will, strong to bring his love into the world. So what does fasting look like? It can look like a lot of things. I already mentioned the first Friday, the, uh, the Friday fast. I would encourage you to embrace that. Um, but here are a couple additional ideas. So you could do something like you could, um, if you eat between meals, stop eating between meals. That could be a fast. You could skip a meal or make it smaller. Some people like to stop using salt or pepper or other seasonings in their food. Make your food less palatable. A lot of these kind of center around food. I don't know why that is. It's like a common thing. Sometimes I give up music, and I find that particularly irritating and efficacious. Somebody I know likes to give up ice in their drinks. And I know someone in particular whose favorite, not her favorite fast, but one that she feels is commonly suggested to her is that she should give up cream in her coffee. And she's like, I don't like coffee without cream. Not really. And so sometimes I cheat and have tea instead. Of course, there's stuff like bread and water fasts. Okay? But there's, there's a lot that you can do. It doesn't have to be bread and water. It could be much, much simpler. Try to do something that you know you can already do, that you, that you think you know you can do. And do it for a, a short period of time. You know? Practice. Remember that. We are going to grow in spiritual life through practice and experience. Okay. Um, if you do feel, when you're trying to determine your fast, um, where do you want to look for that? Uh, you want to look to the Holy Spirit. Let him suggest the fast to you. Uh, if you feel like you're being called to a more extreme fast, if you feel like you should be fasting from sleep or some other more extreme asceticism, I would say don't do that on your own. Go and seek the counsel of a spiritual director. Okay, uh, There's a saying attributed to St. Teresa of Avila that says, he who has himself for a spiritual director, anybody else, has a fool for his spiritual director. Okay, so mercy. Back to Peter Chrysologus. Um, he says, fasting bears no fruit unless watered by mercy. Okay, some of you are familiar with my work in the Alpha Ministry. One of the questions we ask when we talk about prayer is, how do you have a relationship with someone you can't see? How do you have a relationship with someone you can't see? Well, in Christianity, that's not a valid question. Matthew 25 tells us exactly where we see Jesus. Yes, thank you, Jenny. 
we absolutely need Jesus in the Eucharist. But we also need him in the least of our brothers and sisters with a face and hands and feet and all the sufferings that we have or can imagine and many more that need to be met. How can we practice mercy? Well, we already mentioned almsgiving, which, just to be clear, almsgiving is not tithing. It is a generosity that goes beyond tithing. Okay? Um, but it's appropriate that St. Peter should conflate the two because the church says that almsgiving is a special form of mercy because those who are oppressed by poverty are the object of a preferential love on the part of the church. They're special. Among the people that need the mercy of the church, the poor are special. Okay? So that's a particularly powerful um, way of mercy. But what other ways are there? Well, I think for all the Catholics in the room, there are, uh, everybody here seems old enough to be confirmed. And, you know, I, I'm so thick sometimes. I thought about this for about two days before it hit me. Back, in, back when I was in uh, confirmation training, um, we talked about these two lists called the corporal and spiritual works of mercy. No joke. The church has laid it out for us. That's where we do mercy. Those are the, they're, they're, a little, they're a little vaguely worded, and that's on purpose because they encompass many things. And if you want some more specifics, the, um, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops has on their website uh, lists of the works of mercy, corporal and spiritual, and expounds on them, and then invites you to um, hashtag different kinds of works of mercy that you think fall in different categories. So if you do that sort of thing, I would say do that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, corporal spiritual works of mercy. Do you guys remember them all? Good ones, visit the imprisoned and bury the dead. So I'm just going to read them off because we're like out of time. But like feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, clothe the naked, Shelter the homeless, care for the sick, visit the imprisoned, bury the dead, give alms to the poor. It's got its own. Spiritual, admonish the sinner, instruct the ignorant, counsel the doubtful, comfort the sorrowful. Bear wrongs patiently. Forgive all injuries. Good luck. Pray for the living and the dead. I can do that one. I got one of them covered. One out of seven. Okay. So, I talked about how meeting Jesus and our brothers and sisters can really change our lives. You know, some of us are teachers, and that's not just um, a vocation, but it could be a spiritual gift that we teach. Uh, and that, if it's a spiritual gift, then that is one of the ways that God has chosen for us to express his heart into the world. So, I'm going to bleed into spiritual gifts a little bit here. Um, we might be a little bit scared of those, uh, and I, I have a section about this, bunch of quotes from the catechism and stuff on it, but we should not be scared of the spiritual gifts because spiritual gifts are really helpful in your spiritual life. You want to know what kind of mercy you're supposed to do? Find out your spiritual gifts. Because if you try to start doing mercy before you determine your spiritual gifts, they'll bust out because you'll be doing them. Because as you practice, you'll find things that are like particularly efficacious for you, particularly powerful, where you really encounter Jesus. And suddenly you realize you've got a spiritual gift busting out. You might be an intercessor. You might be a healer. You might be a miracle worker. Or you might just be an encourager. I said just, but that is an incredible gift. You might be a prophet. Not nearly as dramatic as you might think. I know some. Uh, you might be, what else might you be? You might be a teacher. You might be an apostle. You might be a preacher generally considered to be like 32 or something of them. Uh, and everybody's got their own unique combinations of them. If you haven't looked for them, look for them. Because in one sense, they're all the same. Because they're all about God putting his heart in us. They're all about God putting his heart in us. And in another sense, they're all different. Because he's allowed us each to express his heart uniquely into the world. And it's the most powerful way we can do it. I think that's um, probably a good place for me to stop. The key to the three-legged the three stool that I gave you is humility. We need humility for prayer. 
because otherwise we won't meet God there. Humility, the, the church says, is the foundation of prayer and a gift that can only be accepted in humility. We need more fasting, or we'll just be bitter and dissatisfied. Uh, we need more mercy, else we would not consider the least of these worth our time. We wouldn't consider them Jesus. We need humility to accept our spiritual gifts, because we might not get the ones we want, or we might get one we don't want. That's what happened to me. We need humility to discern, because we have to acknowledge we don't know everything. We don't understand everything. So somebody asked me, what intercessory suffering, suffering for someone else, what does that look like? Is it an attitude or a specific sequence of prayer? Please explain this further. This is the kind of question that I would want to ask as well. Um, I don't have a straight up answer for this. I would say, is it an attitude or a specific sequence, intercessory suffering? Um, no, it, it's not a it's not a sequence of prayer. Is it an attitude? Sure, um, because I would refer you back to the model of Christ suffering on the cross that we looked at. We're trying to imitate that model. You know, can I choose the suffering? Can I freely choose the suffering? You know, is it is it a voluntary suffering? And um, this can this can get pretty deep. Saint Therese of Lisboa would say that I choose it all. She would choose everything that happened to her. So just because it's not something that you picked to happen to you doesn't mean you still can't choose it. So it's, it is those three pieces. You do choose the suffering. I got a flat tire today. God, you knew this was going to happen. You can make this for my good. You're aware of everything in my life. I choose this flat tire because you planned it for me. I choose it. Okay? Not happy about it. I choose the the difficulty and the irritation of this flat tire. I choose it. Okay? And, you know, it doesn't just... The, the next one is innocence. Okay? Um, I didn't cause a flat tire. Well, maybe I did. Maybe I drove up on the curb. My wife will tell you I do that sometimes. Uh, but, you know, if it's, if it's something beyond my control, then, then certainly I can be an innocent sufferer. From that standpoint, if I'm, I can, I can choose that. So to come back to the intercessory part, do that for someone else. Okay, I know someone else who's suffering. We always know somebody who's suffering. We always know somebody who's suffering. And you can intercede for yourself. I'm suffering. I can intercede for myself. I can pray for myself. Okay, so I'm going to choose this suffering, whatever it is, for that person. You know. Um, I'm going to do it, and I'm going to focus on loving that person. I want what's best for them. I don't just want whatever they have to go away. I don't want it to just be suddenly poof gone. I want it to be what God wants it to be. I want the best for them. I'm not saying it's easy, and I'm not saying that I can really describe it fully, because how do we learn in the spiritual life? Anybody? Experience and practice. Thank you. I heard both of those. Experience and practice. That's all I can tell you. Try it. You'll like it. I mean, uh, try it. Uh, God will teach you through it. I've got two questions on how I do this with my kids. My kids, I can tell them about the principles of things like fasting. I don't make my kids fast. That's just not going to end well. But I do give them, I have tried to impulse ideas of caring about others. You know, we're talking about Jesus' babies, and we're not talking about little kids, we're talking about everyone. Uh, I say, Jesus' babies are out there, and some of them don't love him, and they don't know about him, and they're all suffering. Because everybody here on this earth is suffering until we're fully united with God. And so I tell them, you know, we can do things for them. Sometimes we give money towards them, they put money in the, in the, in the basket of church, um, you know, quarters, dimes, singles. I got three kids. I don't have a lot of money, a lot of spare money. Got to go buy an Xbox. Um, so I can't do a whole lot with them with fasting, except teaching them sometimes there are things that we give up, and I've seen them do that. Sometimes they choose it on their own. They've seen them give things up for each other. Sharing, frankly, 
sharing because every time they're sharing something with a sibling, they're fasting. They're giving it up for themselves. So teach kids to share. Uh, see, we just figured that out together all by ourselves just now. I didn't have an answer for that. Uh, almsgiving. They put money in the, in the basket of church. Uh, that's not the same, but in that one, the way that I can teach that to them is witness. That's what I can do is I can witness. I, I do, um, I have taken people on the side of the road shopping. I've given them rides. Um, my wife used to hate that when I give people rides. She's like, you're going to end up in a ditch, dead, and somebody else is going to be driving your car down the road. I, I've never found more transforming moments than when I've taken someone from the side of the road and listened to their story and just listened, go shopping with them and just listen. You will never be the same. And I, I don't say that um, as any kind of a joke or anything. When you meet Jesus in the list of your brothers and sisters, and this is the next topic, this is mercy. When you meet Jesus in the least of your brothers and sisters, in his brothers and sisters, when you choose to be him to them and let him meet you through them, it's, it's crazy and complicated. And when you do that, you see that it's real. You'll never be the same. When you find the way that God wants you to bring mercy into this world, bring his love to your brothers and sisters, and you begin to practice that, you will never be the same, and you will never want to go back. So for my kids with almsgiving, I can just um, witness, but the the catechism specifically addresses prayer. And um, I think I cited uh, paragraph 2684 uh, in here. 2685 specifically addresses uh, prayer with the kids, that they are to learn prayer through daily family prayer. They participate in a powerful way in the life of the church through the experience of daily family prayer. It's kind of their first taste of that practice and experience thing. And I, I don't want to like talk myself up, but I really want to talk my kids up because um, my son did something really wonderful. Um, he witnessed to his uncle and a stranger. Now, my son is six. Um, and I I stopped praying with them their night prayers, which was a mistake. I'll be the first to admit it was a mistake on my part to stop praying night prayers with them. Um, I stopped praying night prayers with them because I wanted my son to lead my daughter, who's four, in night prayers. And so he was uh, with his uncle, who's a mechanic, and they were working in his garage with one of his uncle, one of um, the uncle's friends on a vehicle, and it was time for him to leave, and he got down, and he said, I'm going to pray for you that you get this done quickly, and you get it fixed. And he got down off the vehicle, and he didn't walk away. He turned around and made the sign of the cross and prayed a little prayer to himself, and then left. I did not teach him to do that. I did not teach him to do that. I will not in any way take credit for that. I, I, I do pray in the home, and I do pray with my kids, and I have witness to them, but God has taken the, the minuscule seeds that I have planted unfaithfully, inconsistently in my children's lives, and he has borne incredible fruit. And I can only say if he can do that with my faithlessness, with my inconstancy, if I'm a better parent, I can't imagine what he might be able to do, but he works with us where we are. Recognizing movements of the heart. So discernment is huge, but I'm just going to cover one tiny section of it, and I'm going to refer you back to the School of the Holy Spirit book, which so many of you seem to have encountered already with Jacques Philippe. On page 55, he reaches a culmination of his discussion of Ignatian discernment on a micro level, sort of. So there, there are different ways of discerning, um, and Ignatius addresses a lot of them excellently. Uh, but on, on page 55 of In the School of the Holy Spirit, he says, 
There are three signs by which we recognize the movements of the heart from the Holy Spirit and his inspirations so that we may be obedient to them and grow in the spiritual life. And he says the way we recognize is, first of all, they bring peace. If something brings peace, that is a sign that is from the Holy Spirit. Maybe. It may be from the Holy Spirit if it brings peace. Now, if you're resisting it, um, it's probably not going to bring you peace to resist it. Uh, but I would say if the thought of its fulfillment brings peace, then it could be a, that would be a first sign that it might be from the Holy Spirit. Um, if in addition to this, it is constant, it doesn't change, it doesn't go away, and especially if you see confirmation. I have seen this Bible verse about fasting three times this week. Do you think God is saying something to me? Yes. Yes, he just might be. Okay? So if, if, if the thought of it brings peace, and you begin to see confirmation, you see that it's constant, it doesn't go away, it must be. The third sign that you can look for is if it inspires humility. If we recognize that the fruits of whatever this thing is that we feel inspired to do, um, that any good that comes from them is from God and not from ourselves, then that would be the third sign. If you have those three things, then you, you could be almost certain that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. And I would say, what does he tell us to do with inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Be obedient. Practice. God is going to bless your efforts, your trying. And the first time you have obeyed the Holy Spirit, you're going to know it. And you're going to be blessed with more inspiration. You're probably going to not going to like the next ones. But continue in obedience. It, it will be incredibly fruitful. I have made some incredible friends that I just... Um, well, I'll just share a quick story. I was uh, driving behind someone on my way to work. I have a 15-minute ride to work, really short. And there's tons of traffic that goes around base every day. And I was driving behind someone, stopped at a stoplight. And I was just getting into this, like, listening to the movements of the Holy Spirit. And I was like, I feel like I should say something to them. They're in a car. I'm in a car. The light's going to turn green, and they're going to go who knows where, and I'm going to go to work. No, not happening, God. Didn't go did not go away. In fact, um, I had something that positively scriptural happened to me, and you may have had this happen to you too. Um, Jeremiah talks about this. He says, uh, it's right after the passage where he says, you duped me, Lord, and I let myself be duped. You duped me. And he says, I say that I won't speak the word of the Lord anymore, but it becomes like a fire in my bones that won't be quenched. Now, mine's usually in my belly. Maybe that has to do with my passion for food, but I felt like I had fire inside, and that's not the only time that that's happened. Um, it's usually when I'm being resistant is, is uh, sometimes to let me know that way. And I was like, okay, I mean, we could have a reason to meet up. You know, if, if they pull into my parking lot or something, you know, there's no way they work in the same building. Yes, they pulled in the parking lot with me. They parked five spaces away. I get out of my car, I walk over, and I'm like, I mean, God wants me to talk to you. <laughs> and this woman that I've never seen before in my life, and, you know, we usually didn't come in at the same time, so we never crossed paths. She's like, really? Yeah, I think God wants you to bring his mercy to somebody today. That was what I said. That's what I thought I was supposed to say. I didn't see her again for a couple of months. Then I passed her, I saw her at the elevator, and she's like, that was so awesome. That changed my day. She's like, the fruits of that were amazing. Okay. I guess this could be real. Thanks, God. I, I'll cover a little bit more of the, of the mercy section before we get out of here, but does anybody have any more questions? I, yeah. Because the the first one, like that one that I just described, was kind of uh, kind of uncomfortable. Because like any scripture, he's gonna he's gonna give us discomfort. He's gonna call us out of ourselves. He doesn't. God doesn't call us to make us comfortable. He calls us to be like him, and that means not like me the way I am now. Because if I'm honest with myself, I don't really look like him most of the time. 
It's going to call me out of my routine. It's going to call me to be different. It's going to call me to change. I don't want to change. You know, I teach for a living, but I give the same talk everywhere I go. I, I, give the, I teach the same material for four days, and I teach the same material everywhere I go. And um, oh, I'm cool with that. So getting up here tonight, you know, while I do a lot of public speaking, that wasn't awkward, but I was like, I'm going to say the wrong thing. I totally am. He's going to call you out of yourself. So that might be why you don't like it. You know, so just hang on to that excitement. Get, journal. Do the journal. You know, when God gives you consolation, when he bears fruit in your life, when you do something obedient to the Holy Spirit and it happens, write it down. Remember his love and fidelity. Because he's going to remind you of that. And you're going to need to remember it because there'll be times where you don't feel it. Like the next time he asks you to do something, I'm like, I don't really trust this. I mean, if I'm honest with myself, those are the words that come out of my mouth. I don't really trust this. We've done this over and over and over again, and I still, to my own shock and disbelief, I don't trust you. I can't believe I don't trust you. And God's like, did I let you down before? Sometimes it wasn't fun. Did I say it would be fun? No, you said it'd be great, and it was. And you were right. Okay, so unless somebody's got another burning question, which, go ahead. How do we balance our mortification, our fasting? How do we not take it too far, too extreme? Um, don't leave tonight and be like, I'm going to do a bread and water fast for the next week. I mean, it, I'm not going to tell God no. It's totally possible he could ask somebody in this room um, to do that because, no kidding, um, who thinks that saints are rare? Are saints rare? I mean, they're canonizable. I mean, people that should be on the canon. Are saints rare? Daggone it, they are not. They are not. They just don't all get recognized. There are people in this room. I pray to God more than, I pray to God everybody in this room, but there are people in this room that may end up on the canon. And if you ever follow me on Facebook or see any of my posts, every once in a while I put up something that says, canonization or bust, because I don't want anything less than the greatest thing that God wants for me. And that's at my best, okay? That's at my best. Because I could totally post that in pride, but sometimes I say that. Sometimes God really gets gets my ire up, and He's like, "I want you to be a hero. I want to be a hero." He's calling all of us to that. Okay, it's not supposed to be rare, and it's not as rare as the world would have us think. You are nearly as alone as the news makes it sound. All right, guys, where is God? When can we talk to Him? Let's do that. Let's do that. I want to close with a prayer of Pope Francis that he gave us in Evangelii Gaudium. And this is from Section 3. This is, this is a beautiful prayer. So just pray with me for a minute. Lord, I have let myself be deceived. In a thousand ways, I, I have shunned your love. Yet here I am once more to renew my covenant with you. I need you. Save me once again, Lord. Take me once more into your redeeming embrace. Thank you guys so much.